Welcome to Trial Alchemy. Important issues are decided and amazing things happen every day in civil jury trials. In this podcast, I'm going to interview outstanding civil trial lawyers who are members of the American Board of Trial Advocates, ABOTA. They are the very best plaintiff and defense civil trial lawyers. To be admitted to ABOTA, they had to have tried 20 or more civil jury trials to conclusion, had to be excellent trial lawyers, and also had to be honest, civil, and professional in their interactions with their opponents and the court. We'll talk about what works and what doesn't work when you try a case to a jury. Hi, I'm your host, Monty McIntyre. I've been a California civil trial lawyer since December of 1980 and a member of ABOTA since 1995. These days, I help settle cases as a mediator and decide cases or issues as an arbitrator and a referee. I also mentor lawyers to help them become excellent civil trial lawyers and mentor law firm associates to quickly become productive members of their firms. This podcast is brought to you by California Case Summaries, an online civil case summary publication that enables California civil lawyers to always know the new case law in their practice areas and apply this knowledge to gain a competitive advantage over their opponents to get better results and win more cases. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Masters in Trial, and I'm delighted this time to have as my guest a BOTA member and defense lawyer, Alan Brubaker. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Alan. He is a leader in his firm, Wingert, Grebbing, Brubaker, and Jeske, located in San Diego, California. But he's also an experienced trial lawyer and a leader in the profession, and he's highly respected and esteemed by both peers and clients alike. Allen devotes his practice to complex civil litigation, including business and intellectual property disputes, product liability claims, and employment matters. He's tried more than 60 cases to verdict in federal and state courts, and he served as the president of the San Diego chapter of ABOTA. He also is the past president of Calabota one of the regional organizations of ABOTA. And ABOTA is a premier association of trial lawyers. Now, Alan has received the AV preeminent rating from Martindale Hubble. He's been listed in Best Lawyers in America for 20 years. He's also been recognized in each edition of the San Diego Super Lawyers. Alan is a fellow in the American College of Trial Lawyers. It's an association of lawyers and judges experienced in the trial of cases who are dedicated to improving the standards of trial practice and admission to the American College is by invitation only. Alan is also a fellow in the International Society of Barristers and admission to this is also by invitation only. And in 2015, Alan received the Daniel T. Broderick III Professionalism and Civility Award and I think most lawyers in San Diego believe this is the highest honor a San Diego trial lawyer can get. This lawyer recognizes a San Diego attorney who demonstrates the highest levels of civility, integrity, and professionalism. So, Alan, thank you for coming today. I'm delighted to have you and uh, welcome to our podcast. So I wanted to start off with this question. Uh, all of us start as baby lawyers, and you started in the 70s, and uh, we don't know how to try cases when we start out, but fortunately, we get to learn from people. So who are the people who have helped you, and what are some of the significant things you've learned that have brought you such great success in the courtroom? Thanks, Monty. I'm honored to be asked uh, and invited to chat this morning. Uh, I had the opportunity after my first year in law school at USD to join uh, this firm as a law clerk and uh, to work for what I considered a handful of the greatest uh, trial lawyers uh, here in our town, uh, including Charlie Grebbing, uh, John Winger, uh, Mike Anello, uh, later Tom Lavoy before his judgeship, and of course now currently Bob Jusky, but uh, 
I guess I I attribute I some of this to I to sheer luck, like the uh, El King song currently that she was lucky. That explains uh, how she got where she was. But I did have this opportunity through an introduction and you know through hard work and real perseverance uh, was able to make something of it. I uh, I also had in my early years of practice, Monty, the chance to actually work with uh, Bill Fitzgerald, uh -huh. uh, McGinnis Fitzgerald, uh, uh, your firm, uh, with Red Boudreau, uh, and with Dan Broderick. And those were great sensational lawyers, all of them. opportunities, great lawyers each, for sure. And, you know, I attribute some of this to, uh, in the early days, supportive parents, uh, to my supportive wife and, and daughters through school and uh, in a challenging litigation practice when time is not always our own, uh, through some sense of balance, uh, as much golf as possible, and <laughs> lots of travel. Uh, the firm had uh, in the early going a, a, a three-month sabbatical program, and so early in my career, I was able to spend three months with uh, my girls when they were young and we traveled uh, to Europe uh, on one sabbatical and to Hawaii on another. And I think that's paid dividends uh, here in the end of my uh, years of practice. So uh, lots of, of very positive uh, input, including uh, at USD Law with some great law professors in torts and in evidence, uh, for example. Well, that's great. Thanks again for being a guest and you are, uh, you're, not only a defense lawyer, you've also had experience trying some plaintiff's cases. Now, one of the things that people like to hear about is what's one of your most satisfactory trial victories or outcomes? Well, I was reflecting on my trial career and uh, a really special case came to mind. We represented a woman who was in a long-term relationship with a gentleman who's uh, business became extremely successful. Uh, in the end, he cut her out of uh, her entitlements. Uh, we sued. It was a paternity claim, promises that had been made, breach of contract, uh, theft of a business opportunity. And we tried the case to Judge Wolfile in 2015. And the result was a $33 million judgment uh, in favor of our client, not all of which was collected, but uh, a year or two later, we were very successful with this fellow who was quite difficult to chase down and uh, were able to uh, situate our client so that she could live it out uh, in uh, her entitled uh, circumstance. And she's been forever grateful and it was a wonderful opportunity. Boy, that's a great result. Congratulations on that. It's, it's a great thing that we get to do as trial lawyers is you can really make a difference in people's lives. I'm sure you've enjoyed that in your so career, true. right? And I find that on both sides when I represent plaintiffs, uh, obviously, and uh, representing defendants as well. Litigation's stressful on all sides of the aisles, right? That's true. So, Alan, uh, you have done mostly defense throughout your career. And when you're going to trial, um, Great trial lawyers always develop themes for the cases and how they're going to present the issues to the jury. So what are some of the most successful themes that you've used as a defense lawyer in your trials? Well, I was uh, intrigued by your conversation with Craig McClellan recently and heard Craig speak to his development of themes on the plaintiff side of the case. and. I think it's fair to say if you put a mirror to those themes, you would be developing some of what we approach our trials with individual responsibility. Uh, when we represent corporations, the uh, development and maintenance of good policies uh, and uh, critically adherence to those policies. Um, the big word today in litigation that we hear so much from a plaintiff side, reptilian in a fashion is safety. Right. And I, uh, you know, the knowing violation of safety rules 
I is is death knell to a, the defense of a case, and uh, particularly when on the defense side we don't acknowledge uh, a failure to comply with a safety rule, and or uh, we get a client refusing to concede uh, the violation of a safety rule, and, and that can build uh, into a difficult circumstance when we're trying a case. Okay. Well, you've kind of uh, talked about this, but you've seen some of these issues and themes from the other side. So are there any other themes that you've seen from the opposing side when you're the defense lawyer and the plaintiffs are using themes that you found to be pretty effective? Individual responsibility uh, to focus back on the circumstance of an incident, for example, and to keep the jury focused on uh, the global picture to continue their attention in a circumspect manner to all that went into uh, the event uh, or circumstance. And, uh, you know, we do talk about individual responsibility uh, often uh, in theming our cases. Okay, that's great. Well, in terms of uh, when you go to a jury trial, Great trial lawyers have different opinions about this, uh, and we'll see what the variation looks like over these interviews, but what part of the jury trial, from your perspective, is the most important and why? I think opening statement is the most important part of most cases that I try. We've recently been invited to offer many openings to juries before the jury selection process, and that's become uh, a, a really solid uh, way in a five-minute circumstance to introduce prospective jurors to the case. And I think we get a lot more from the jurors uh, after providing a mini opening, then the judge inquires, and then we get an opportunity uh, to inquire um, just to lay out what the jury ought to expect uh, in development of the case and to share with the jury the process a little bit that the plaintiff's going to be presenting his or her case first and that we'll be responding uh, and uh, talk a little bit about uh, a, a burden of proof, obviously, once we slide into the selection process. But I think opening can be critical. Uh, if it's not done well and done uh, effectively, it, it can be downhill from there. And with the minis, about how long do you like to give a mini opening statement when the judge allows it? How long do you like them to be? My experience is five minutes uh, mm -hmm. is outside. Uh, it really has to be focused. It really has to be um, controlled and well prepared and thought out. Um, but anywhere between three and five minutes just to introduce the jury to the big picture of the case that they'll be trying. And that's really an important opportunity for you on the defense side and, and the plaintiffs on the plaintiff side to really give them a build down, simple, this is what this case is about. So they start to get an understanding, right? Right. And I uh, did one of my original mini openings in a case in Kern County uh, involving really challenging facts, a school teacher with uh, kids on his lap and uh, the plaintiff lawyer did a mini opening and told the jury that he was going to be looking for $18 million and you could see the jaws drop on the Kern County jurors or prospective jurors faces and then he used a different number uh, when he actually opened in the case after the jury was selected it was a, it was a wild beginning to uh, an interesting case. Well, that's a while to be anywhere. Actually, let's talk about this for a second, because I'd, I'd like your thoughts on this. So you're there, you're allowed to give this mini opening statement before you're going to start the voir dire process. So the jury gets a sense, the potential panel gets a sense of what's going on. And then you had this example of the plaintiff's attorney saying this jaw-dropping number and then changes it. How important for both the attorneys and the parties is credibility when you're in a jury trial. I just think it's prime. It, it, it's probably the most important. 
if you don't uh, gain credibility with prospective jurors from the very first sighting, uh, you're dealing with your clients, you're dealing with the court, uh, with the court staff, with the court reporter. Um, it, 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 it really is just critical, critical that you have credibility with the jury from, from the outset. Yeah, I agree. In my trial experience, I think the lawyer has to have credibility, but your clients has, have to have credibility. The witnesses have to have credibility. And I think if any of those part of your team lose credibility, same thing on the other side, it's going to hurt that side of the case. I so agree. And we make every effort defending lawsuits to have our client there with us at counsel table to be invested in the case with us, uh, just as the plaintiff is invested in the case with his or her lawyer, and that we engage our client. I always turn to the client uh, as part of the jury selection process so that it doesn't appear that I've taken every liberty uh, in every circumstance that we actually do have input and that we're a team at council table. So we present ourselves uh, in that way. Okay, well now let's, uh, we're kind of talking about jury selection and you've given a mini opening statement. So when you're on the defense side of the case and you're trying to pick a jury from the panel that's sent to the courtroom, generally around 40 people, uh, what are you looking for in terms of what kind of people would you like to be jurors in your defense cases? And it may vary depending upon the issues in the case and the nature of the case. And what kinds of folks in general are you looking for for different kinds of defense cases? Certainly it does vary by the community in which you're trying the case, by the veneer uh, before you, who the folks are in the courtroom. I And I, you know, I think it's critical that the address of the jurors not be just the 12 or 14 or 16 in the box, but to others who ultimately prospectively will be seated as jurors uh, in the case. Um, so like on the defense side, I mean, are you looking for Sometimes people are looking at backgrounds, at professions, at what they do for work. Some people are looking for people who are more responsive to the issues that you think are important. I mean, what kinds of characteristics and qualities are you looking for in a juror when you're the defense attorney? All of that. And my tendency is to want better educated, uh, older jurors with real life experience. Uh, obviously, we're looking for the potential of a conservative draw to the courtroom uh, based upon background experience, uh, work, uh, and, and obviously education uh, plays into that. Uh, John Wingard uh, had a rule, he said, uh, when you're defending a case, you can never let a teacher sit on your jury. And I found that interesting since my wife, Susie, is a school teacher, was a first grade teacher for 30 years, I, and I think she'd be an okay juror, but John had it as a black and white. Never a teacher on your jury. Never and I've been burned because I've avoided that that exclusion a handful of times, and <laughs> it, it's come home to roost. It's come home to bite you, huh? <laughs> yes. Well, in terms of uh, when you're getting... What do you use on the defense side or have you used jury consultants in trying to pick jurors and have you found them to be helpful? I have, and I've found them to be invaluable in the right case uh, with significant exposures and uh, significant issues uh, at play. I've found them uh, literally indispensable. They help with creation of juror questionnaires which in a bigger case uh, we find essential, particularly in difficult cases involving children and molestation, for example, to determine from jurors' personal experiences. It's simply amazing uh, how many folks have had this uh, issue of sexual assault or sexual molestation, not as individuals, but in their family or within their reach of friends. 
and the hesitance to talk about these issues in open court. So the development of a really quality questionnaire and then, of course, you know, assistance in the actual voir dire process, uh, the questions that will be asked, uh, helping with the background uh, of the jurors once we get the jurors identified, the ability of the jury consultants to go into social media and backgrounds and to determine uh, information that years ago wouldn't have been available to us, I we find critical. Um, and I, you know, their, you know, their expertise, their social science backgrounds, their psychology backgrounds uh, turn to be uh, quite valuable, particularly when the process of selecting a jury goes a little bit longer. When we're reviewing the responses prospective jurors give us to questionnaires and we've got an overnight to study what we've learned before we examine the jurors. Um, and I, you know, I've used a, a number of different jury consultants in trial and I, 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 they're, they're so busy these days that I sometimes can't get the ones that I want to rely upon uh, in a given case because we're going to trial at a given time. But uh, uh, no real downsides to it. We've used jury consultants to put together mock trials for us. And uh, th those experiences have been varied, uh, some very successful, some not so much. Uh, they tend to be very expensive, uh, very time consuming for us, for the law firm to put on, right. to burden a, a partner to play the role of Craig McClellan in presenting the plaintiff side of the case. Uh, for example, um, in, in a major case that we tried twice because of a mistrial, we did a double blind. Uh, so we had two sets of jurors in different rooms oh. listening to the same, same evidence case. presented and how different the leadership of that uh, particular group of folks by who was selected as um, the four person uh, uh, might have been that we got so much information from that undertaking that it was almost overwhelming, almost too much information wow. to gather. And the second time we tried that case, we did it by focus group and found it to be much more efficient, uh, much more helpful uh, in our development of the issues, uh, taking the toughest issues and presenting them to a group of six or eight uh, gathered for pizza here in one of the conference rooms, get them by Craigslist. Uh, and we've even done it remotely on occasion since COVID. Um, and, and, and we find the, the, the focus group work now to be uh, much more effective than the So you tend to use a focus group approach more often now to get ready for trial. We do now simply because of the expense and the burden. And what kinds of... Uh... I mean, one of the great benefits of focus groups is those people will just give you some great ideas about how to phrase things or, you know, what to say and your issues. So what kinds of great things have you learned from these focus groups? Like what uh, things that you things you'd never thought were important that uh, a, a single juror will land upon because of his or her experience in life. The case that I'm describing was a was a death on a Yamaha watercraft, a wave runner, and uh, individuals had had experience with those watercraft, uh, either riding them or uh, boating alongside them, or you know family members with them, and I uh, yeah we learned so much from individuals and it paid off. I we ended up unfortunately, with a juror in the uh, last of those two trials uh, who had been ra been raised on the Colorado River. And uh, we lost that case on the plaintiff's side uh, because he uh, controlled the jury and uh, said, buy your ticket and you take your chances getting on a machine like that. Um, so, you know, we had some inkling to it. 
but we lost through peremptories and ability to get that individual off the jury. And uh, it, it turned out to be a, a real challenge for us. Well, yeah, well, that's part of the unpredictability of trial, isn't it? Because we never know who sure we're going to get as a panel. We never know who the panel is going to get on or get off. So these days, it sounds like you guys are probably on any significant case on the defense. You're probably going to be using some focus groups and they're going to help you to get prepared for how you want to talk to the jury, not only in opening statement, but even in voir dire and throughout the trial, right? Correct. And we engage our jury consultants at that stage, if not before, so that we get assistance from the jury consultants trying to get the most we can out of the focus group, draw all kinds of ideas, begin the development of what will ultimately be our challenging questions in the juror questionnaire, in our jury selection process, you know, hitting the most difficult issues and the toughest parts of our, of our cases. So as far as questionnaires, just a quick question. In my experience, I think questionnaires are great when the judge allows them. And the, the conclusion I came to, and I don't know if you agree, but it seems to me that when jurors ask, answer questionnaires, they're the most honest. It seems like they're least honest, giving us the answers as the lawyers, and they're second most honest giving the answers to the judge, and they're most honest answering questions on a questionnaire. What, what are your thoughts? That's been our experience. That's the argument we make to the judge for resisting our request for the juror questionnaire. I We've learned that Lengthy questionnaires are not uh, acceptable to most judges, so yeah. we get it really refined and really focused on the difficult issues. We explain to the judge why we believe the jurors, prospective jurors, are going to be more direct, more honest with us, uh, disclose more critical information, and that it really will make the process of the selection of the jury go faster than it might otherwise. And we've been able to convince certain judges of that reality. And I think it's proven to be true in certain of those instances. We've also been told, no, this is not a case in which we're going to be using a jury questionnaire. And so we always present it, always have it ready to go at the trial readiness conference to chat with the judge about it and to get the judge's reaction to it so that if the judge is resistant, we can commit to refining, reducing uh, in, in size and scope, um, and then chat about it further you know once we get to trial and start arguing motions now last year a new civil decision came down on the courts of appeal that i found was very interesting talked about peremptory challenges and in the criminal context traditionally the batson wheeler challenges on you're trying to challenge somebody and throw them out because of race california this court of appeal decision said now that uh, some of the statutes have been changed in California. You can also question whether somebody peremptorily challenged somebody because of sex, age, sexual identification, all kinds of stuff. Have you found in the last few years, has it been more difficult to uh, get through peremptory challenges because people were raising questions about, you know, why did you challenge this person or not? Or have you found that's not an issue so far? I had it uh, occur one time that a peremptory challenge I made uh, was taken to the judge uh, out of hearing, obviously, of, of the jury. And the suggestion was made that this was implicit bias or race based. And I explained, no, the real basis for the peremptory challenge was something in that individual juror, prospective juror's background that I didn't think best suited for service as a juror in my case. In fact, it was the case that I just mentioned in Kern County uh, with a okay. flamboyant, you know, sort of famous local plaintiff lawyer uh, who challenged the third peremptory challenge that I made. Uh, his challenge to my peremptory challenge failed, but, you know, the point was made that he was aware and that, you know, the process was being watched closely. Yeah. And I think obviously appropriately so. 
Now, Alan, when we talked before this session today, one of the things I learned is you've tried a case recently since we've been coming out of COVID. And uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about, since you've had that experience, do you have you noticed anything, any difference with the jurors when you tried your case after we've gotten through the pandemic that seems any different from what they were like before? Do you think they're still pretty similar? Well, my uh, experience, I first, I, after COVID, uh, a full year after the pandemic began, I tried a jury case uh, in Judge Taylor's courtroom uh, in March of 21, so a full year after the pandemic began. And we were, you know, with plastic in front of us and between the judge and the witness, and I had six layers of plastic from my chair uh, on the defense side through the plaintiff side to the jury wow. um, witnesses were allowed to unmask uh, but no one else uh, was allowed to do so during that trial it was very difficult to hear uh, and to see and to get around uh, and to get about in the courtroom the judge did let us open and close uh, from the well which was helpful the plaintiff lawyer by the way uh, kept a mask on throughout the trial which i thought was very challenging for the jury uh, uh, to, to pick up what he was saying. I've not tried enough cases since COVID to, to know the difference, but I, I can tell you, Monty, that issue is currently under study at so many levels. The American College is studying the issue. Uh, ABOTA nationally is studying the issue. It's going to be um, a, a subject of discussion with the American college meets here in September. There's a panel uh, together to talk about how jurors are acting differently today post-COVID for all kinds of reasons. The recession uh, scare, uh, you know, remote uh, access, all kinds of issues that have affected our lives and that may be changing jurors' views. Uh, and and Aboda's got a panel put together uh, for the national meeting in October in Little Rock. Uh, as well. So I think we're going to be learning a lot about uh, jurors post-COVID uh, in these next uh, coming months. Oh, that's great. Well, let's let's continue on. We've been kind of in the trial and picking the jury and thinking about that kind of stuff. Um, when you're giving your opening statement, which you say and believe is the most important part of the trial, now that you give your full opening statement, what are you trying to do and accomplish? What's your strategy for that? To uh, be totally direct and candid, uh, to take away the challenging issues from the case, to hit them up front uh, and candidly to deal with negatives. Uh, always in this age to address damages because invariably, the plaintiff lawyers are addressing damages in an opening statement. That's a very different circumstance than existed when we began trying lawsuits in our careers, yours and mine. Right. Um, damages weren't spoken regarding at least total numbers uh, until closing arguments were made. Uh, now it's the subject of discussion in jury selection in many openings, as I shared by way of example, and certainly in our opening statements. And if we, on the defense side of these cases don't directly address the damage issues raised by plaintiffs in their uh, opening statements or in their jury selection, we, we, we can't uh, erase what they've heard at the end of the trial. Right. So I think today we, we must and always do, uh, even in the, the best of liability cases on the defense side, have to address damages in the event a jury might get to that issue uh, at the end of a case. And you'll do that even in the opening statement, which makes perfect sense these days. I do in direct response to what the plaintiff's opening statement has been. Clearly it's in, in our mind's eye from the plaintiff's side, an effort to uh, you know, indoctrinate the jurors to a number without any evidence uh, existing, right. which is why we object to that or, or used to object to that 
happening, but the plaintiff bar has succeeded in establishing that as a routine uh, where they have to determine whether prospective jurors are uh, simply going to eliminate the concept of significant damages in a particular case. And so routinely now, uh, damages are spoken regarding from the very start of the case through the finish of the case. And we've got to be ready, willing, and able to uh, to address that head on and, and do so now. You know, interesting issue. I started off, as you referenced earlier, as a defense lawyer, love doing that, but I also have done a lot of plaintiff's work over the years. And uh, in plenty of plaintiff's cases that I've tried, I was very concerned about not wanting to offend the jury with some number that they thought would be too big. And your example of that guy with the 18 million sounds like he kind of ran into that buzzsaw. But um, have you seen in, in you know recent years that same kind of thing happening where the plaintiff is talking about some dollars and you get some sense the jury's reacting to it and maybe they're offending them? Absolutely so. Um, a, a recent case in trial where I had the personal interests of the physician, and from the very start, the plaintiff lawyer spoke about uh, multiple millions of dollars in the teens, and I, I think the jury was put off, and I think he then had a challenge to put the case together in a manner that supported that sort of a number, and it didn't from a damages standpoint. So I think it, it's a credibility issue. And uh, the plaintiff lawyers have to be very, very careful with it. Uh, you know, I think that the plaintiff lawyers, the plaintiff bar now trains to say, if you don't reach, you will never realize. So if you don't shoot for the moon, you won't get to the stars kind of thing. But I think it can be uh, absolutely uh, problematic from the plaintiff's uh, side. I agree with you. I think it can backfire. So I don't think it makes sense mm -hmm. to say, just try to ask for everything possible or the moon, but you're right. There's a great tendency to do that these days. So Alan, when you're, what are the reasons? Uh, yeah. When I'm sorry. you're, uh, when you're giving your opening, sorry, when you're giving your opening statement and let's say when you're presenting evidence in trial, do you like to use demonstrative evidence, uh, video clips? Do you like to use things where you're using a trial director to show things electronically to the jury or trial pad or other things like that? How do you like to show your parts of the case in opening statement and also throughout the trial when the evidence is presented? Absolutely. I think today the standard is uh, because of our social media world and and television, it's got to be demonstrative. They've got to be shown it uh, in addition to being told about it. And I think it um, varies the presentation uh, in an opening statement. I think it makes your presentation of evidence memorable in the manner that it becomes consistent with the opening statement. And one of the reasons that I think opening is most important is we've got to be truthful with the jury. And we often find overreach in opening statements made uh, when we're representing plaintiffs by defendants, when we're representing defendants by plaintiffs, and we hold lawyers to the representations they've made to the jury in opening statement when the evidence doesn't support the statements that have been made. And we'll grab uh, you know, a daily transcript from the absolute remarks made and yep. quote them to the jury uh, th that there was no evidence presented of this promise that had been made you uh, in opening statement. So um, shorter, I think is better, uh, but honest to the, the ultimate degree, we've got to be able to provide evidence to the jury on the issues that we raise with them and present to them in an opening statement. Yeah, I think that just goes we, back to that key question. I should mention you asked about trial director or, or iPad. I've experimented with those kinds of things. My experience when the cases of any significance is the electronics can be distracting. I'll easily use an Elmo to present uh, a contract 
uh, and to highlight some language in a contract and direct the witness and the jury to the document as testimony is delivered about the document. But to have uh, someone uh, from, uh, you know, a, a trial presentation company, uh, executive presentation, uh, if the lamp goes out in the projector, uh, or if we need something special because we haven't anticipated an issue that develops in a direct examination that we need to use in cross-examination, the ability of someone really capable with the electronics and with the electronic evidence to be able to reach deep, uh, to find a passage in a deposition that we want to put on a screen um, instead of just reading to a jury, uh, I think it becomes essential. Yeah. Well, I, I found that with using that kind of video depot clips where you have the video and they see and hear them, but they see transcript below and you're only showing the clip of the question and the answer that you want for impeachment, very effective. I agree. You know, Absolutely. If, if you put up a page, they're reading the whole page, even though you may only want that one True. question and answer. And, and I heard Craig say, and I certainly agree with him, that it the reason has to be presentation has to be varied. You you, you can't do it all one way, or, right? You know, the jury just uh, goes to sleep uh, on it. I think you've got to vary the presentation. Do it sometimes um, directly by reading uh, from the right. transcript uh, a response that conflicts the response given in a deposition, for example, and on other occasions to play a clip where you know that testimony is going to be absolutely critical. Yeah. Variety is really important. Um, years ago, um, Alan, there was a fair amount of discussion of if there's a plaintiff's case, often plaintiffs might call the defense as their first witness under 776 in California, evidence code 776. Do you find that that's done very often anymore? And do you take any steps to prepare your client on the defense in case they get called by the plaintiffs uh, right out of the chute? I still find it happens um, the majority of the time. Quick story by a law partner, Steve Grabbing, and uh, one of our fine young associates, Salim Hawatme, just tried a case uh, in Judge Taylor's court in which the plaintiff lawyers called every defense witness out of the chute. So the determination was, are we going to directly examine our clients in the plaintiff's right. case and hit while the iron is hot? Or are we going to wait and put on a defense case with the cross having occurred during our case? So our witnesses were prepared for that. We learned about it. Uh, at the end of day one of trial, when the judge said, who will you be calling right. uh, as your witnesses tomorrow? And the answer was, we'll be calling the defendant and the manager of the marina and et cetera. And uh, so when the plaintiff's case was rested, uh, our team of trialers said, uh, the defense rests. We've presented our case in the plaintiff's case and the benefit of it, obviously, on the defense side. So plaintiff lawyers have to be real careful and real selective about who they call under 776 uh, because we get the opportunity to present our case in the middle of a plaintiff's case. And it, it worked out well for us in that one. Yeah, I mean, I've always thought there it's a double-edged sword with the 776 because at least if you're the plaintiff's lawyer, when you got that defendant on the stand, you get to cross them first, but then they get to tell their story because you're going to go up there as a defense lawyer and you're going to start telling your story. And it's, you know, in the plaintiff's case. So it's it's definitely a double-edged sword. It sounds like that worked to your benefit in the, that case that uh, your lawyers tried. Uh, it, it did. And, you know, I think you've got to be really selective. If the defendant is a particularly poor witness, uh, that might be an occasion to uh, do a 776 examination, just use the testimony from the deposition. If the questions and answers don't flow, um, so, you know, I think it's a, a case by case, witness by witness assessment that has to be made. Now, do you do anything 
you know, the plaintiffs and how they come across and how likable they are are so important in a lot of cases, especially tort cases. But when you've got a really likable plaintiff and you're defending a case where there's some substantial exposure because of the kinds of damages involved, what do you do to try to deal with this really likable plaintiff? I put on kid gloves and <laughs> I am very respectful uh, to the plaintiff. Uh, we tried a, an horrific injury case for Qualcomm years ago, um, and the case developed out of an arc flash on a power plant, huge voltage involved. The plaintiff had, not knowing that this particular circuit was energized, pulled a steel tape from his back pocket. Uh, this was on a weekend when we could close down part of the power plant. And he was wearing jeans and a polyester shirt and got within a foot of the live circuit and the circuit flashed and his shirt caught on fire and he was burned horrifically. Um, and he was the nicest guy and his family was in the courtroom throughout the trial, very pleasant wife, two teenage boys. And um, he, he was not the focus uh, of our effort, uh, you know, looking at him, uh, we we conceded the severity of his injury and uh, the, the necessity of his treatment at the University of San Diego uh, here, University of California, San Diego here. Um, so we really treaded very lightly on the injury and on the damages being um, played and focused on third parties, others responsible for safety in the circumstance under the Privet Doctrine. That was a case that um, we involved the appellate counsel. It? it did. We involved the appellate counsel at trial. Mm. They helped us develop alternative jury instructions. Our position was that the Casey jury instructions on Privet, delegation of safety to a licensed contractor, um, were written incorrectly and inconsistent with the Supreme Court authority. And our, our trial judge uh, defaulted to using the Casey instruction. Uh, so we had the alternative instructions in the record. Verdict uh, adverse, our interest, substantial contribution by the plaintiff and the third party, but the, the, you know, it was in the millions. We appealed the case to the fourth district. The trial judge here at our superior court was uh, that determination to use the case instruction was confirmed. It went to the California Supreme Court. And a year later, uh, we have the decision that remands the case to court for a judgment to enter in Qualcomm's favor. Uh, fortunately, this plaintiff had recovered significant monies from the contractor to whom we had delegated safety and uh, the project uh, that day. So he um, at, at least recovered very significant damages, but the millions that were um, um, in the jury's verdict uh, were, were, were taken away as a result of uh, involving those appellate lawyers at Horvitz Levy. So it was a really, really good decision. That's an outstanding that. result. I've seen that and I've summarized that case when it came down from the Supreme Court. I know you Court. have. And uh, yeah, great result. The Supreme Court essentially. The Very Supreme Court essentially and, pulled together 50 years of Prevet law and, and, and yeah. restated it in a 38-page opinion. So it's a case that will be cited uh, going forward for a very it, long time. It will be cited a lot. And you were very wise to hire appellate counsel, understand that there could be those issues. And it sounds like it was great that you got into the record that went up to the Court of Appeal and the Supremes the whole alternative jury instructions and all that. So that's excellent work. That's a great. Yeah, we believe it. Result. We believe it really made the difference or we'd have been back to retry the case. Yeah, that is excellent. Well, in terms of um, when you're getting to the damages stage, you know, you put on your evidence, you put on your experts um, and all of that. Um, and the plaintiff's attorneys are certainly in the final arguments going to be talking about 
how much they value the damages. And I want to talk more about the non-economic damages, pain, suffering, all that kind of stuff. So plaintiffs are always going to use stories and analogies to help the jury figure out how do they put a dollar value on this? What kinds of ways do you offer to the jury to help them come up with what they would feel is fair if they get to the issue of damages and if they get to the issue of non-economic damages do you give them analogies or suggestions and what have you found to be helpful when you do that the experience is quite often the plaintiff lawyers will build their soft damage claims uh, the big part of their case to time to life expectancy, to the impact on uh, the remaining years, the golden years, uh, as we frequently hear them referred to. And the argument from the plaintiff side will be tied to time, how many days or how many dollars per day this disability resulting from the incident uh, might be worth weeks, months, years, and then begin to multiply them our response on the defense side has simply been to question the integrity of the primary assumption, the dollar value assumed by day, by week, or by month. Um, and to suggest inferentially, at least the unfairness of that sort of a calculation as a mechanism for uh, coming up with a uh, non-economic damage uh, assessment we're seeing now almost routinely that um, because of Howell and other restrictions in recovering hard damages that right. plaintiffs are determining not to present the expense of their medical care and, and even their wage losses because it tends to tether the numbers down to anchor uh, yeah. the hard numbers. Right. And uh, we've found that to be difficult. We've had mixed experience with the judges, whether we can insist upon uh, presentation of those uh, hard numbers by the plaintiff or whether we can take them and present them affirmatively on the defense side of the case. I, I had a, an experience uh, recently where the judge allowed the plaintiff to make the determination tactically not to present economic damages at all. And uh, that was accommodated and we weren't allowed to present it because it wasn't part of the plaintiff's case. And one of my partners tried a case in a different courtroom here and the exact opposite result obtained. And we were allowed on the defense side of the case to share with the jury the Howell meds, if you will, the treatment expenses associated with the care. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting area that's evolving in the law where I remember when you could, before how, when you could put up the medical bills and all that, juries always found it very helpful to try to figure out the non-economic damages by knowing what the economic damages were. But if you give juries zero in terms of economic damages, that's kind of, that makes it difficult for them because they're trying to figure out how do I value this? this I think the theory is let the jury presume from their own experience, just how expensive medical care or dental care uh, or psychological counseling really yeah. is and let them invent it on their own and play their own numbers. Yeah. Uh, of course, we know that there are groups in town now that uh, are providing medical care at terrific expense outside of network care. So the Kaiser All on leans. All on a lean All basis. on leans. And now we're hiring medical expense experts and right. there are battles uh, on that front with what's a reasonable charge for a particular medical care. If the therapist is normally charging $90 and this particular therapist for this particular case out of network is charging $600, what is reasonable in the community? Yeah, it's, it seems like Hal has created even more of a cottage industry of lean doctors that provide a lot of care and the, the numbers that can be charged are quite significant. Well, there's no limit to it, you, you know, except reasonableness. So the defense has to prove a lack of reasonableness in it right. because once it's presented, 
uh, it's up to us to, to, to make the challenge. So, Alan, you've tried the case. You put on your evidence. You're going to make your final argument. And as a defense lawyer, you know that you're going to get to argue, but you're not going to be the last. So what, if anything, do you do in your closing argument to address the fact that the plaintiff's lawyer is going to get that one last chance to talk to the jury? And what have you found to be helpful for you in dealing with that? I start in the jury selection process with burdens of proof and the order of evidence that because the plaintiff realizes the burden to prove the case, he or she will present evidence on behalf of the plaintiff first and will go second, that they've got to exercise patience and not prejudge the case based upon what they first hear. And I repeat that uh, when I close and I ask that the jurors uh, realize that I don't get an opportunity to rebut a plaintiff's rebuttal argument and uh, invite them to make the argument that they might anticipate I would make in ultimate sir rebuttal, if you will, um, just so that they, they have an understanding that that extra opportunity relates to the burden. That's great. And then it's not by choice that I'm not getting up again to talk. <laughs> That's true. You, uh, you have to let them get up and do that. So, Alan, we're, uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation. We're getting close to the end. I'm sure we could talk about this uh, subject for a lot more time. But one of the things I want to close with, a couple of things. Uh, the next question is, what's the best piece of advice that you received as a young trial lawyer that you would give to a young trial lawyer who, or young lawyer who wants to become a good trial lawyer? What, what was that for you? watch uh, others uh, at the art, uh, work hard in preparation uh, of your case, outwork the other lawyer. Uh, certainly, I was taught very early to be yourself, whatever you can learn from a John Wingert uh, and a Charlie Grubbing uh, and a Bob Jusky, you can take the best of all, but you've got to be yourself. And I think there's a tendency to want to mimic uh, artists added really successful lawyers on the plaintiff or defense side, and that it really is an individual uh, art. Uh, and I guess advice would include to get as much experience as one possibly can in training sessions, listening uh, to, uh, you know, watching, going to court, seeing it happen, um, and then to jump in and seize every opportunity. We're not getting our young lawyers to trial often enough these days uh, because of the expense of it and because of the mediation alternative uh, presently. So um, I would encourage young lawyers to be selfish uh, at times, absent expense of, of the client, at the expense of the client. If the case is right and the circumstance is right to really try to preserve that opportunity to take a case to trial. And I think it's our, our jury system that is, you know, at, at risk uh, at this time because of the expense that has developed and because the younger lawyers aren't able, as we were able, uh, to get into trial when they're young. Uh, so that would be my advice uh, at this point. Great advice. Do you have any final suggestions or insights regarding jury trials that you've learned throughout your career that you'd like to share as we get close to the end here? I apologize, Monty, something was going off uh, and I missed your question. Do you have any final suggestions or insights regarding jury trials that you'd like to give before we end our discussion today? I don't think of anything off the top that we haven't spoken directly regarding. Um, get in and experience it. Yeah. Well, Alan, you've been a wonderful guest and you bring a wealth of knowledge and experience. Apologies. Yeah. 
you bring a wealth of knowledge and experience and really it's been a wonderful interview i know the listeners will learn a lot and will appreciate it so thanks so much for being a guest with me today and uh, i appreciate it look forward to seeing you sometime in the near future